Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind, and I love my work, the opportunity to talk with remarkably enlightened people about things that really matter to all of us. And honestly, the most fun I have is when I hear from listeners I've never met, often from places I've never visited, who've been touched by our Humankind program. The grants we get from the funders you hear named on our program simply don't cover all our expenses. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep the program and this podcast going. Please visit humanmedia.org and at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston. This special project, the Diet Climate Connection, is funded by the Henry P. Kendall Foundation, the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, the Lintelac Foundation, and a special grant from the Henry Luce Foundation. Food is a huge way of, of tackling health issues and an epidemic that is just beginning to crush our country um, when it comes to things that are overly processed, things that have high sugar, things that are just, um, that aren't real food. Um, for me, that is a huge driving force in, in why I think that community members really should be aware of what their students are eating and really what they are eating. There's progress on healthier, more sustainable meals at school. You're listening to the Diet Climate Connection, a special project from Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. A public school cafeteria may not be the first place that leaps to mind if you're looking for the healthiest food choices, let alone inspired cuisine. But with one in three American children now classified as overweight or obese, some schools are paying more attention to the foods they serve and the eating habits of their students. The problem is so alarming that Codman Academy, a public charter high school in the Dorchester section of Boston, has gone so far as to ban junk food from its campus. And that reassures Olivia Brown-Pina, who has a son at the school. I'm not concerned about what they access here because I know that they eat healthy. Um, outside of school, it's a different story as far as the, you know, the, the sweets, the drinks, sodas. That's my concern. This is a McDonald's, a two-minute walk from the school down Washington Street. A giant poster above the counter here depicts burger options like a Big Mac plus a large Coke and large fries with the caption, Decisions, Decisions, Decisions. Because Codman Academy deems these choices unhealthy, it has banned students from buying food here during school hours. The quest to improve student diets was spearheaded by Mbakwe Okafor, who served as the school's wellness director. We are in the center of a food desert. And the frustrating piece is that we ask families to make changes that are not the status quo for the community. So you're saying that if a young person here in this neighborhood of Dorchester, an inner city part of Boston, sure. decided, I really want to eat healthily going forward. Mm -hmm. I know I'm surrounded by all kinds of junk food options. I want to opt 
for something that's healthy, that's good for me, that they would have a lot of difficulty doing so even if they made a firm decision that that's what they wished. 100% correct. When they have to walk through or walk past many stores that serve processed foods or foods that are high in salt and sugar and beverages that have 30 grams of sugar per serving, we're going to have a hard time getting them to believe that that's possible, that, that that's, that's realistic. To graduate from Codman Academy, one of the requirements now is passing what's known as the Save Your Life Nutrition Competency Exam. A study guide teaches kids the basics of nutrition, but also the health consequences of eating poorly, including obesity and diabetes. Olivia Brown-Pina says the knowledge has made a difference for her son. James is now saying what he wants to eat. He's more into um, looking at what's in the ingredients when when we go shopping. So now he's changed, like, Mom, don't buy this. You know, purchase this instead. At first it was a struggle because he would say, Mom, I have to eat healthy at home and at school. So, um, but he's adjusted. And so what are his preferences at Um, home? Fruits now, vegetables, more water. Um, less juice because we're always, you know, the kids, you want juice boxes, and that's been from a young age. You pick fixed your snacks, and you basically give them what they want. But now it's changed. Codman Academy now designates itself a junk food-free zone. Gone are sodas, candy, and fast food from stores like McDonald's and Burger King. Encouraged are fruits, cooked or raw vegetables, beans, lean meats, brown rice, and pasta. This is not exactly the diet many of the Codman kids have grown up on. Joanna is a ninth grader. How big of an adjustment was it when you started coming to this school where they have these different kinds of food rules? It was kind of big because my school wasn't like this. They weren't like all healthy, like junk food free. They actually serve everything, like things I like here, but just like healthier. And you think healthier means it doesn't taste as good? No, not not exactly, because there are healthy foods that taste good, but the ones they serve, not so good, like these hamburgers. And I guess they weren't really meat or something. Meat substitutes, like protein-rich veggie burgers, are part of the new wave of healthier school nutrition, ratcheting down what some health experts see as an overconsumption of high-cholesterol, high-fat animal products, while ramping up on veggies, fruits, beans, and grains. In addition to being healthy choices, a dietary reduction in animal products, especially red meat and dairy, is also more climate-friendly because energy-intensive livestock production can be such a heavy consumer of resources. Recent health trends among American young people have alarmed the medical community. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, obesity among 6 to 11-year-olds jumped from 7% in 1980 to nearly 20% in 2008. Adolescents fared almost as poorly. Sedentary lifestyles are a factor, 
and public health experts point increasingly to the foods young people eat. School started to shift to processed foods in the late 70s and early 80s, and it was really the, a result of the economy. Mary Joan McLarney is a nutritionist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. It was a period of high inflation in the United States, high increased costs. So what schools started to do was shift to pre-processed, manufactured convenience foods, which were less expensive and didn't require the labor to have foods prepared on site at locations. It also, they eliminated dish machines, they went to convenience packaging, that's when competitive foods start to be introduced into the program. Competitive foods are products sold on school grounds, sometimes in a vending machine or a school store, and are not part of the formal cafeteria meal. They can include sodas and chips and are frequently less nutritious, according to a report from the prestigious Institute of Medicine, which is operated by the National Academy of Sciences. But competitive food sales also became a source of revenue for budget-strapped schools, in some cases providing more than $100,000 per year. So if you look at it economically for the short term uh, in those days, maybe there was a short-term gain, but the long term, it, it hurt us. It hurt, hurt the country nationally. I think we're starting to realize that, and I think we need to think longer term. James Arena DeRosa is Northeast Regional Administrator of the USDA's Food and Nutrition Service. You know, we went through this movement where we, we stopped teaching children how to cook and prepare food, but yet that's a really important life skill that's important for us. Through It's a lifelong skill that we should have. And, and I think we're trying to reintroduce those things with the collaboration and cooperation of the schools uh, because they're starting to realize how important it is. In July 2012, landmark federal legislation called the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act took effect. It's an attempt to address child obesity, diabetes, hunger, and other public health concerns. The new act affects the USDA's National School Lunch Program, which during the school year serves meals to more than 30 million children, and the School Breakfast Program, which feeds more than 10 million. First Lady Michelle Obama, December 2010. I think that parents have a right to expect that their efforts at home won't be undone each day in the school cafeteria or in the vending machine in the hallway. I think that our parents have a right to expect that their kids will be served fresh, healthy food that meets high nutritional standards. The revised rules ensure that students are offered both fruits and vegetables every day of the week. They substantially increase availability of whole grains while limiting sodium-saturated fats and most trans fats. The rules also specify a cap on calories at a time when even children are battling the bulge. At many schools, healthier foods will mean less reliance on pre-processed foods and more old-fashioned cooking from scratch. Nutritionist Mary Joan McClarney. When you're preparing food on site and you're using fresh natural ingredients, those foods don't have, typically don't have sodium, or you can control the amount of sodium that's added, particularly around baking and seasoning foods. And it's, when you're preparing foods on site, it's not processed. Typically, the foods are prepared fresh. So how hard is it for schools to move into food preparation that may be more work-intensive, but that also will result in meals that taste better and are healthier? It's really variable. It really depends on the philosophy of the program, what they have been doing. Do they have facilities? Do they have knives? Do they have scales? Do they have basic equipment to make to start those changes? And then do they also have the skills and the capability to do that?
The USDA doesn't mandate what foods schools may serve, but it sets rules for reimbursement of school meals. One significant change under the new act is that schools can now be reimbursed for serving certain vegetable proteins, such as soy products. Doug Davis is food service director for the Burlington, Vermont Public Schools. My parents um, have continually asked for tofu on the menu. And I, my response has always been, it's simply not, um, it's not a claimable protein. And if it's not claimable, schools don't get reimbursed for serving it. So Doug Davis did some detective work. He reread recommendations by the Institute of Medicine, which gave tofu a thumbs up for health and which were cited as a basis for new USDA reimbursement rules. But he noticed that tofu was in fact left out of USDA's initial draft of the rules. My response or request to USDA was if we're following the Institute of Medicine requirement, may we please add tofu as an acceptable protein? And they did. And that got incorporated um, that got in the incorporated. legislation that It passed. is in the current Hunger-Free Kids Act, yes. Legumes like soy, lentil, and other beans are not just a rich source of protein. They contain no cholesterol, unlike meat and dairy. And growing legumes on a farm typically uses far less energy and emits far fewer greenhouse gases. That's why USDA nutritionist Mary Joan McClarney is big on bean dishes. It's really a nutrient-rich source of protein, fiber, B vitamins, iron, magnesium. So it's really a wonderful, nutritious, economical food source that will also help the environment and the foods. It will change the food supply and what we are producing and what we need to produce. But the real challenge in the National School Lunch Program is to get children to eat those foods. Before joining the USDA, McClarney led school food services in Somerville, Massachusetts, an urban community. She launched a real-world experiment in healthy school meals. We were able to provide a fresh fruit and vegetable snack for two of our uh, lowest-income school communities for every student in the school every single day. And what we found was when we tried to introduce a lot of variety and a lot of different fruits and vegetables, the children didn't even know what they were. So we had to do a lot of taste testing to get children to try and sample these foods because they'd never seen them or never been introduced to them at home. Such as? We were really fortunate one year we had a grant from Whole Foods and we had blueberries, strawberries, we had cantaloupe, we had mango. Every week we were, they donated a different fruit or vegetable. And you're saying Broccoli. Uh, all of those things, children wouldn't even take them. And then we realized, wow, we're really going to have to just have children try these, taste them, test them, just to expose them to it. We had to do it multiple times in order for them to eat them. Lunchtime in the cafeteria at Burlington High School in Vermont. The school district here has been recognized as a national leader for its healthy, sustainable meals program. To make nutritious foods desirable to young palates, the district hired Maria Garrido, a professionally trained chef. One popular dish she's developed is roasted root vegetables. It's always potatoes, carrots, and onions, but we would also throw in whatever else we could get when we could get it. So sometimes we would get beets, depending on the season. We might have beets, we might have rutabagas, we might have turnips and offer them as a, as a vegetable as opposed to mashed potatoes, which is also considered a vegetable. But um, this is more colorful. When you roast the vegetables, they have more flavor. 
Um, and the kids have really, I mean, they, they've been very popular all throughout the district. When you cut the, the root vegetables into smaller pieces and you roast them, it brings out more sweet flavors, especially in carrots and onions. And then you toss them all together, season them a little bit with garlic, um, and they just, they taste better. They're very colorful, especially when we can put things like beets in them. Do you think that roasting these vegetables is a healthier way to serve them? As opposed to frying them? Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, yes. I do think that they're roasted with a little bit of oil. Um, they are healthier than um, french fries, which um, we, are, we don't do in the district anymore. You're listening to The Diet Climate Connection, a documentary project from Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. At our website, you can obtain a free download of this program and other diet climate segments as they become available. You can also access our free printable booklet, The Climate-Friendly Food Guide, to help you make Earth-smart practical choices. For all this, please visit humanmedia.org. Through its farm-to-school program, the Burlington, Vermont School District is committed to serving locally grown food when possible. One of the main things it does is that it puts the kids in the schools in touch with the local farmers. Tom Hudspeth is professor of environmental studies and natural resources at the University of Vermont. Even in a, in a rural state like Vermont, Vermont's one of the most rural states in the nation, and even so, there are lots of situations, or there were lots of situations, where the kids did not rec- know where their food came from, and they, and they didn't know the local farmers in their community. And so with farm-to-school programs, not only are you getting local food, more nutritious and healthier, um, into the schools. Why is locally produced food more nutritious? It's not been on a truck for, for days coming from the proverbial 1,500-mile trip from farm to plate, which for Vermont it's even longer than that. That's the average in the U.S., as I understand it, from, from farm to plate. Uh, so it's just a lot more nutritious. It's, it's fresher. This is Intervale Center, a nonprofit network that leases land and equipment to small, independent farms operating on 135 acres in Burlington. Intervale was the first community-supported agriculture farm in Vermont. It trains young farmers, engages members of the community, and promotes sustainable land use. Its aim is to support a community-based food system. Andy Jones is the farm manager. In the fall, we have groups of students come, and one of the things that we love to have them help with is harvesting some of our root vegetables in the fall, particularly carrots and things like that. So a lot of kids that come out, they claim they don't like carrots. Well, you're out there in the fall. The carrots have had uh, a few frosts they've gone through. They've really sweetened up. Vermont has a great climate for carrots. We have sort of textbook soil for carrots. Those kids are eating carrots. They're rubbing them off on their, you know, they're rubbing them off on their T-shirts to clean them up. They're eating carrots and they're loving them. They're incredibly sweet. They're delicious. They're full of all sorts of excellent nutrition. That's a kind of relationship that you can't get just from eating something at a plate. Since part of the Intervale Center's mission is to promote sustainable agriculture, I wondered how participants here view a near-universal finding among scientists studying climate change. 
Livestock production, say the scientists, is typically so energy-intensive that we need to shift to a more plant-based diet because it leaves a much smaller environmental footprint. Andy Jones. In a place like Vermont, there's a little bit more of a nuanced argument because the... Um, the meat and dairy that is from a grass-based system where you're not using, uh, you're not filling the animals full of commodity grain production, which is very energy intensive, um, the energy balance looks a lot better. That said, it's on a much smaller scale. You produce a whole lot less than you can in a feedlot in the Midwest. And so on balance, I think the overall argument is right. You want to produce, you want to, you should eat less meat and dairy, and the dairy and meat that you do eat should be from these pasture-based, grass-based systems. A longtime participant at Burlington's Intervale Center is a concerned citizen named Bonnie Acker. Wearing a big straw hat, she joined me and others around a picnic table at Intervale. So my daughter grew up farming. She then went into public school in seventh grade, and she became one of the students in the Burlington school system who had a fundamental belief that good food was possible and it also tasted delicious. So did you become a kind of activist in the community for food issues? I did. I saw what was on the menu, and I went home from school for a month crying my heart out. I said, oh, this is really a problem. And I was a basket case. I thought, what am I going to do? What on the menu was so disturbing? Wasn't anything colorful or fresh. So I heard other people were interested. I called them up. Somewhere down the line, after 50 people, I called Doug. And it was October. And here's a guy I cold called him. He didn't know me from anywhere. But Doug Davis, the Burlington School's food service director, is an approachable guy. And he told me that given Bonnie Acker's intensity and commitment, he quickly realized this is someone he'd rather have on his side. He spent an hour and a half with me on the phone. And I suggested whole wheat pita pockets with falafel, with alfalfa sprouts and tahini sauce. And there was a pause on the phone. And this incredibly wonderful person who hadn't met me, there was a pause, and he said, Bonnie, that's a great idea, but the kids will never eat it. Our kids weren't ready to go from, you know, peanut butter and jelly on white bread to falafel in a pita with tahini sauce. You know, it just wasn't time yet. As I heard from so many people advocating for schools to serve children healthier foods, it's a slow process requiring gradual systemic change. When Bonnie wanted falafel and pitas, for example, I said, you know, we, to get kids to get to that place, we need to start doing taste tests where we can transition them from white bread to wheat bread, from iceberg lettuce to um, romaine lettuce, from... American cheese to cheddar cheese. As many parents can attest, children who dislike a particular food are unlikely to eat it, no matter how healthy or eco-friendly. So people striving to refine school food offerings have learned a simple technique. Invite kids, even very young ones, to become judges in a taste test. Burlington school chef Maria Garrido describes a recent experiment with elementary-age children. We didn't want to give them a you know, five-page survey on what they thought of black bean chili, which was essentially what the recipe was. So the kids were given two spoons. One was um, green and the other one was yellow. And they were told 
green was for yes and yellow was for no. Um, and they were told to turn in the spoon that they that they liked. So it sort of became a little game for them too. Do, do um, the kids and like they, participating in, and they, in this they feedback? They loved participating in it. They loved being asked what they thought of it. And sometimes they would say, yuck, they didn't like it. But they, you know, were very happy to give you their feedback. And a lot of kids, actually the majority of kids in that taste test, um, were coming up for seconds and asking for more. The cafeteria at Burlington High these days features diverse offerings, proof of more than a decade of gradual changes to the menu. Kids can select standard American fare, including burgers and chicken sandwiches, or can line up at the international section, which today features Mediterranean food, including roasted cauliflower, falafel, and yogurt herb sauce, hummus, and wheat pita. How does falafel fare with the students? So with 60 languages spoken in our high school and dozens and dozens of cultures and countries represented, um, I think it's as popular as anything else. Food Service Director Doug Davis. I feel that there's still a a large group of children who would go to a a processed chicken sandwich, um, which is still available because my underlying goal still is that we fill the bellies of our hungry kids every day. Um, What I am seeing now, though, as those second graders are now seniors, um, the ability that they have to choose food and their confidence in choosing it has changed quite a lot. When I was younger, I was a little bit more naive about the food I ate, and if it tasted good, if it looked good, uh, then I would eat it. Shepard Lance sat at a table with other seniors at Burlington High. There was a change in how I uh, looked at my food, how I ate my food, and there was a curiosity shift in my thinking about, okay, how did this food get here? It's really fascinating, too, to think about uh, Like, there's broccoli on my plate. Of course, this broccoli wasn't grown here. It had to be grown somewhere else, and someone had to cut it, and someone had to wash it, and someone had to ship it to somewhere and buy it from someplace. So what caused your change of awareness so that you're noticing these details and paying more attention? There was a larger awareness in society. Uh, There's media about it. I read a book called uh, Fast Food Nation uh, and I saw that movie and um, just a lot of things. And Really kind of an eye-opener for you? Yes, yes. And also the simple fact of I'm growing up and I should be questioning things, I should be thinking about things, and I shouldn't be uh, just taking things as they were. And increased awareness about where food comes from dovetails with environmental concerns shared by many young people. Student Ryan Plouffe. I mean, because if we're getting food from out of state, that requires a truck to carry that food over. And of course, that, that does a substantial amount of impact to, to the carbon footprint. So when we're growing locally or when we're growing like at the Intervale or even our garden out front, it would lower the carbon footprint a substantial amount if we would just remain localized. And is that important to you? That's extremely important to me. I and mean, that's, you know, our future generations have a world that we're kind of leaving in shambles right now. And if, if, we, if we want to solve this, we, we have to take action today. It's not, it's not something that we can postpone any longer with, with the 
carbon footprint being so high as it is right now, I mean, we saw the effects of global warming with the flooding all over Lake Champlain that completely destroyed our entire coastline. And it's, it's, it's definitely something that needs to be fixed today. Students at lunchtime in the cafeteria of Burlington High School in Burlington, Vermont. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Special thanks to Tony Buck, Art Cohen, Lisa Mullins, and Bill Mumaugh. Some musical selections by Gunnar Debozzi. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston. Program development provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. And remember, our climate-friendly food guide booklet can be downloaded free at humanmedia.org. This segment, part two of the Diet Climate Connection, is Humankind program number 182. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.